Alrighty. Well, good morning. Just uh, as always, you all look beautiful. Not as beautiful as usual. I, I don't know what the reason. Is. I don't know what. I don't know what the reason is. Maybe it's my eyesight, the lighting, or something. But you guys look. You guys look beautiful. Uh, I'm grateful, obviously, to be here. It's, it's, uh, I'm just I'm excited that so many decided to come out. I, I was not expecting even this many because when you're talking about traveling, but even more so, you're talking about the hangover from all the food and leftovers uh, and the difficulties of getting out of bed and things like that. So I'm, I'm glad that you all are here, and I'm glad Alex gave me this opportunity. Uh, it's not an opportunity that I'm, I'm taking often as of now in my life uh, uh, because of trying to spend more time at home with uh, the wife and with the son. Uh, so so uh, I've, I've told just about everyone except for Alex. I said, Alex, if you need me you, or if you want to break, just any spontaneous break, let me know. Uh, that's my way of showing my love for him because I, can't, I, can't, I don't have any money to buy him anything. So, um, so I'm always grateful for this opportunity. Uh, I'm, I, it is again uh, the the work is going well at Westminster for those that care. Uh, I'm the I'm the chaplain this year and that has been going uh, way better than than expected. Uh, uh, one positive thing of being a chaplain is that I don't have to ask myself to preach. Last year they asked me to preach a lot. Uh, I haven't preached at all this year as a chaplain. Uh, I, I get to assign that to other people and. I got a one-year sabbatical from uh, Huntsville Bible College. Uh, asked, I asked that so that I can have more time to relax. Uh, been working extremely hard up till uh, now. I guess I only have one job. This is my first time I told someone since I was 14 that I had only one job, and I'm not counting being a husband. And I'm counting just one job from the government. Uh, and so that's that's been a new new journey for me. And I'm enjoying enjoying it. So. Uh, as Gardner C. Taylor and James uh, uh, Massey uh, constantly, I remind you all of their description of preaching. It is the sweet torture of Sunday morning. Uh, it's a burdensome joy. And so because of that, uh, I don't take it lightly, but I always uh, have Alex in my, in my mind because I know that of all the, the, the adjectives, and of all the, the different attributes you have to have as a pastor, uh, resiliency, persistence is at the top. And not many pastors, believe it or not, make it past three or four years of pastoring. Uh, not many. Uh, I, if I'm correct, and I, you guys can always check any, anything I say, uh, I believe about 40% of pastors quit before five years. And so uh, when you're talking about the amount of stress, the, the amount of tension, uh, things like that, one thing that uh, people don't like to admit when it comes to uh, holidays, marriage, and pastoring is that it is way more complicated and way more frustrating than, than most would admit. Uh, and so those are something that those three have in common. And yet uh, we're called to be resilient in all of those when you're dealing with your family and uh, at Thanksgiving or Christmas. We're going to look at... Um, Ecclesiastes today, but before I, I, I get to that, uh, let, I'm, I want to pray for travels uh, for those that are journeying and uh, for our country. <clears throat> Lord, we are so grateful that you allow us to um, to be able to enjoy uh, the travels and the opportunities that we have. 
to see family and friends. Uh, and for those, Lord, that are uh, on their way back or that uh, will be on their way back uh, from their visitations, I ask that you will protect them from uh, the dangers of the highways and the roads and that you will protect them from those that uh, may not take driving as serious as it should be taken. Uh, Lord, for our country, for the, uh, for the uh, natural disasters, for the uh, acts of terrorism that have been uh, on display as of late, uh, for the constant tragedies that we have to acknowledge, uh, we ask that you will remind us that uh, you are in control and that you are God and that you will get glory from these things. And although we may not understand or know the answer, it doesn't mean there isn't one. Uh, be with us now. Amen. All right. Well, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Uh, the bad news is I'm going to be preaching about death today. Uh, uh, that's, I know you guys were expecting a Thanksgiving sermon and a, or a holiday sermon or some kind of sermon about leftovers and me doing a word play with the word leftovers and, and, and things like that. But uh, we're going to talk about death today. That's the bad news. The good news is uh, I won't be long. I, I, won't, I won't be long up here. Now, that phrase, I won't be long, is an ambiguous term. Uh, I'm just going to, just so you don't get your hopes too high, what I think isn't long and what you think isn't long are two totally different things. Uh, I, I'm reminded of the story, I'm sure I told you all, of the grandmother that took her grandson to church one day. Uh, it was his first time ever going to church, so he was asking all these questions. Why? 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 Why this? What does this mean? What does this mean? And, and so they come in, and what are these people here for? Oh, these are urchins. They greet you. This is this. And, oh, what's that symbol? Oh, it's a symbol of the cross. And the pastor's going to talk about the cross, but here's what happened. And he's asking all these questions. And finally, after the offering went by, he asked questions. After communion went by, after all these things, the pastor comes up to preach. And he takes his watch off, and he looks at it, and he sets it down. And he said, Grandma, what does that mean? And she looked at him and said, absolutely nothing. Uh, but I won't be long. Uh, this sermon I'm preaching, I'm preaching it. I, was, I, I, I came to it because about a month ago I had to uh, eulogize. I had a preacher funeral uh, for an older relative. She was, uh, I think, 73. She was in her 70s. And uh, I was very close to the family. It was one of the families that had basically made me and my family part of their family back home in Ludlow. Uh, even though we were distant cousins, uh, they made us even closer and uh, she wanted me to do her funeral. And so this was my second funeral ever preaching. My first one, I, I preached a cousin, of my, uh, a cousin of my mother. She was a Native American, and she died at a very young age because of alcoholism. And so this was my second funeral I ever preached. And one thing I knew about her was that she was known for her wisdom. She was known for... Uh, not just the amount of knowledge she had, but her wisdom. Uh, she, she was one of the first, uh, she was in that first class of people at her high school that integrated uh, their high school. Uh, and so she had to face the challenges of that. She was 
the she was one of the women that started the whole Haitian let's do uh, let's do mission trips to Hades. Uh, and she was uh, the first African American college professor at a particular college, and she went on to serve as a dean at uh, at the uh, University of Miami. And so uh, I knew one thing that the family will say over and over as they spoke kind words about her, which would be that she was wise. And I, 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 I was right. She, they did over and over. People were talking about how wise and kind and active she was. And so I knew that I wanted to come from a wisdom book. And so I was searching Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, didn't see a need for Song of Solomon for this occasion. And I kept looking, I kept looking, and I felt that Ecclesiastes, as I was reading it, would do the best uh, service uh, for me and the family. And so I decided to focus on Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, I think I gave you all by accident, uh, no, I gave you all 12 and 13, uh, and I also focused at verses 16 and 17 as well. Uh, we're talking about the pursuit of uh, wisdom, the search for wisdom. And so, uh, and so that's where I decided to come from. Now, I have emphasized for about three or four years now to various peoples, to various peoples' group, the need and importance of us as a church, as a body of believers, to study the wisdom books. Uh, I don't think there's enough sermon series that happen from them. Uh, I don't think there's enough small groups that happen from them. Uh, in fact, I have a, a, I don't want to call him a protege, but almost, that's almost what he is. I have a young, a young guy that, 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 that doesn't have time right now to go to seminary. doesn't really, you know, that's, not, that's something he wants to do. But he said, well, can you teach me? Can you teach me the Bible? And I said, sure. And the first book we went to and the first thing we're working through now is Ecclesiastes. I think wisdom is extremely important for the believer. Uh, he knows the story of Jesus. He knows that who Jesus is. He needs, he needs to uh, have wisdom. And so uh, we're we talking about wisdom and, and things like that. And so I wanted to, I told him, I want you to join me on my search for wisdom, on my search for wisdom. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was once asked by someone, if you were stranded on an island and could only read one book, what would it be? And he said, uh, the guide, the book of the guide for shipmaking. <laughs> That's wisdom. That's wisdom. He didn't say the Bible. Everyone I told everybody, I said, hey, I'm going to give you a riddle. G.K. Chesterton once asked, if he was stranded on an island, he's going to read one book, what would he choose? Everybody like, oh, it must be the Bible because the preacher's asking. You know, the same way, you're the only one that can pray for our food at Thanksgiving, right? You're a preacher. Uh, and I was like, no, it's not the Bible. And they was like, well, what else could it be? It's a book on how to make ships. And, and so that's what I'm talking about when I say wisdom. Wisdom and understanding are different. It's different than having knowledge uh, and wisdom. Uh, wisdom is knowing how to apply that knowledge. All right. One person said it this way. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. All right. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about wisdom. Now, if you all will, I want you all to join me just for a little while on a journey for me for wisdom. Now, uh, when I when I had to prepare for this funeral, I did what anyone, I don't, no one's in here is in my class, but any, anyone that's in my class 
uh, when I talk about hermeneutics and things like this, uh, I did what I have to do, which is I found the text I wanted to preach from, and so I had to read the entire chapter, then I had to read the surrounding chapters, and then I had to read the entire book. And as I continued to read and prepare for this funeral, I felt like because of the situation we was in, the reason I was preaching this sermon from Ecclesiastes, the reason I was reading Ecclesiastes, I finally got it. And, and I know you're like, you're 28 years old, and I agree. I'm going to finally get it again in Ecclesiastes. But I've read Ecclesiastes several times. Before I went to seminary, I read Ecclesiastes. When I got to seminary, I was required to read Ecclesiastes. had commentaries, and I finally got it. I finally understood Ecclesiastes. Now, I looked at other wisdom books, but I decided to focus on Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. I'm sure you all have already jumped the gun and read 12 and 13. It says, 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is a, but a striving after wind. Now, there's three problems I ran into as I decided to try to understand Ecclesiastes better. Uh, I had great resources and whatever, but I had three main problems. The first problem that I ran into is that a lot of people early on, uh, and even now, don't think Ecclesiastes should be in the Bible. They don't think it's a wisdom book. Kind of like how Martin Luther, he came around, but how he felt about James. This, this, isn't, this, isn't good, this isn't good Bible material. We need to take it out. People don't think that Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And I'm going to talk to you all about why in a few moments, okay? But the second thing I ran into, the issue I ran into was, who really is the author or who really is the one saying these things? Now, if you look at verse 1, uh, it says the words of the preacher. If you look, if you may have a footnote somewhere, it's going to tell you that the word, the Hebrew word that's used, that's used to describe or to translate into preacher is koheleth, koheleth. And I'm going to say this word a lot in the sermon. And I'm probably going to use two Hebrew words a lot. You'll get, you'll get the hang of it, so don't worry. All right, koheleth. It's, it's a difficult translation. Uh, and so because of that, we're not sure. We're not sure who it is. Your Bible will probably either translate it as preacher or gatherer. Uh, this is where we get the word Ecclesiastes from, all right? So we use uh, the way that the Greeks translated Koheleth into uh, the Greek, which is Ecclesia, something along that lines, and to say, well, this is what the Koheleth is. He's a preacher. But if you all remember, Ecclesia in the New Testament translates as church. Church doesn't necessarily mean someone that preaches. The church doesn't mean a building where we go to and hear someone preach. Ecclesia could mean someone that just simply gathers people to come together and we can read scripture together. Doesn't mean they have to be a preacher. And so most people would like to see this word better translated as gatherer. But regardless of the things, this preacher is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, what led us to kind of say, well, who is it? Is it, is it Solomon? And if you read all the testimonies of this particular person's life, we come to the conclusion it is Solomon, even though many disagree with that. So that's the issue. One of the first issues we have is, who is this Koheleth? Uh, is it the son of Solomon? How should we translate this word? Now, here's the biggest word I want you to focus on. Vanity. 
Now, again, if you have a footnote or a little letter or a number next to your word of vanity, it should go down and say that it's, it, the, the Hebrew word is hevel. Now, some of you all may say H-E-B-E-L, uh, but I think the majority are going to go with H-E-V as the transliteration. Hevel. Hevel, hevel. Now, again, that doesn't sound too wise. Remember I said that some people don't think this is a wisdom book? He's not starting off on a good track. Vanity. Vanity. This is the smartest guy, and the first thing he has to say to us is vanity. Okay, cool. What else do you have to say? Vanity. Okay, dude, you're supposed to be smart. You've got to come up with something better. What's the very next thing he says? Vanity of vanities. And his conclusion is, all is vanity. Now, I want you all to take the word vanity, I just said, and get rid of it for a little while. Because, again, with the English and, and the way we understand the word vanity... It's not going to help us out. Some translations may say meaningless. Again, I, I'm, not, I'm not smarter than the people that translate it, but they, you guys have been in session meetings, they have to argue over what word to come up with. And most of them probably didn't agree that the word vanity or meaningless is an appropriate translation of this word hevel. Let me explain to you what hevel is. And you should have a definition at the bottom of your Bible. It is, for the most part, uh, something that is insubstantial. Something, uh, David Hammond at Westminster says, I like to call it slippery. 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 Slippery of all slipperiness. Uh, another way to understand it is fleeting. Fleeting. Okay? Something that you think you got a hold of and then you don't. But the Koheleth, Koheleth gave us a definition. Here's his definition of hevel. Look at verse uh, 17. He says it is a striving after wind. Well, well this word striving, we're talking about hurting, okay? Have, has anyone from the country, has anyone ever tried to hurt something, whether it's sheep or, or chicken or am I the only loser in here? Okay, okay. Uh, I've tried to herd things before. I grew up in a country. We've had to herd chicken. We had to herd cows, horses. All right. I've never been given the task of herding wind. I've never been given that task. You want to know why? Because it's heavy. It's heavy, which means you, it, you won't accomplish it. You're, you think you got it, right? Everybody can try to grab wind right now if you want to. You don't have it. Which is why uh, someone tried to sell a bag of air, I think from a Beyonce concert one time on eBay. And they tried to sell for thousands of dollars. And someone bought it. You know what that is? That's hevel. And it's stupidity and a lot of other things. But when we're talking about vanity, I want you guys to think of something that's fleeting, that's slippery. You think you got a hold of it. Because that's what he's talking about. He is saying everything is Fleeting, slippery, insubstantial. You think you know it, you think you got a meaning of it, and then you don't. This is why people say this isn't wisdom. He is really saying the opposite, another reason why people want to get rid of it, of what the Proverbs author says. He says the opposite of it. The Proverbs author says if you do right, you're going to be rewarded. If you do wrong, you're going to be punished. The Ecclesiastes author says, maybe. He says, I, I want to believe that, but that's vanity as well. That's hell as well. 
that's that that's, that meaning is lost as well because I've seen wicked people prosper. I've seen good people die at the age of 20. So he says, you can try to be righteous, but that's heaven. He doesn't mean don't do it. He doesn't mean that's in vain. What he's saying is, you think you got the understanding of what it means, and you think you understand what to do and why to do it, and then you realize it was all in vain. Because you don't really know. The reason, one of the main reasons people want to discard this as wisdom, the Koheleth as, as a wise person, is because of what he considers as heaven, vanity, insubstantial, fleeting, chasing wind. You want to know what he says is heaven? What is it? Everything. Everything. Everything is heaven. It's not just money and fame and self-indulgence that he says is heaven. He says work itself is heaven. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He, he says, he says uh, in 2.15, he says not just foolishness is heaven, but wisdom is heaven. Chapter 5, he says not only is laziness and poverty heaven, but wealth and success is heaven. He says, okay, I live my whole life to, to make my fortune. And then he said, I die. What was the point of it all? He says, now someone else is going to get my money, and I don't know if they're going to do right by it. You got to read it. He says this. When I was reading this, I'm saying, yes, I, I, I get that, right? For those of you that have people that you're going to leave an inheritance to one day, you don't know if they're going to, you, you can look at them right now and say, I got a good idea that they're going to do right. But it's a lot of people that left a lot of money and the people who did not do what they thought. It's heaven. The question is, why to him, and I'm, I tend to agree, I mean, it's in the Bible, why to him is everything heaven? Well, if you keep reading, you see why. It's because of the great equalizer. What's the great equalizer? Death. That is why everything is heaven. What does the smart person and the dumb person have in common? They're both going to die. You see that? So therefore, wisdom and foolishness, heaven. Now, again, I don't. That, I'm not saying go out there and lose all your all your wisdom. Then don't go out there and just lose all your book smart. But I'm trying to put things. Uh, uh, you see, that what does the spiritual person and the irreligious person have in common? They're going to both die. What does the strong person and the weak person, the pretty person, the ugly person, the wealthy person, and the poor person have in common? They're going to all die. And so then, you can have a bigger house than someone, but you're going to share the same size coffin. <laughs> because everything is heaven. Toy Story has a phenomenal short story called How Much, how Much Land Does a Man Need? I'm, I'm impressed with how many people don't, first don't know who Toy Story is, but who's never heard of that story. You should read it one day and go find out how much land does a man need. Everything is heaven. 
the great equalizer is death. Join me in chapter 9 for a moment. And, I, I, and you may even have a subtitle or a, a, a subtopic or whatever that tells you what the, the beginning of chapter 9 says. It says, death comes to all in mind. Let me read this for a moment. I'm just going to read the first few verses. Chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. But all this I lay to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. What's that event? To the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil. He calls this an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. He doesn't call death itself evil. He says it's evil to allow this to happen. That's why someone, that's not wisdom. You just, you just challenge God's decision to allow death to be the great equalizer. That's troubling for some people. Uh, verse 4, uh, well, the end of verse 3. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and the madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Everything is helpful because of death. Now, the question should be, or one of the questions should be, then, how should we feel about death? How should we feel about death? How should we view death? Well, this wise person that people disagree with as being wise says we should view death as a good thing. Again, I tend to agree with him. I I see you. I understand. Yeah. She, She looked at me like, what? Are you crazy? A few people look at me the same way. Death as a good thing? That doesn't make sense. Possibly one of the reasons it doesn't make sense is because we oftentimes uh, correlate, we, we, we substitute, we merge or marry the, the word good and fun together and think that they're one and the same. Just because something is good doesn't necessarily mean it's fun. And vice versa, just because something is fun, as you all know, not me, but you all know, just because it's fun doesn't mean it's good. All right? He says death is a good thing. I had to say this, by the way, at a funeral with a casket in front of me. Death is a good thing. It doesn't mean that we don't cry, but we cry or we mourn, as Paul tells us, as those with hope. Not as those without hope. Why is death a good thing? Well, first of all, let's look at chapter 7 now. If it's just a couple of chapters over. And he says this. Let's look at the end of verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning. It's better to go to a funeral than to go to the house of feasting, than to go to a wedding. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Why is death a good thing? Why should we rejoice or why, why should we be in the presence of death? And I, I'm gonna, here's my conclusion, and I'm going to say it in one word. 
Perspective. Perspective. Death causes you to have your priorities in check and to put things in perspective. The, the feud that you and someone have for 30 plus years and then one of them die and you go to their funeral and you say, I don't really know why we was angry with each other. They'll cause you to put things in perspective. That life with that person and fellowship with that person was more important than being right. You spend your whole life working and making money and more money and more money and then something happened to you or a close relative, whether it's a, a, a sibling or a child or a spouse, and then you realize work isn't that important. Death puts things in perspective. You spend your whole life trying to be educated, trying to build a name or reputation for yourself. And you know what he says? This is, this is the guy, if you read his testimony, he said, I had everything. I had, I had more money than anyone else. I had more wisdom than anyone else. I had more women than anyone else. And I realize now, it doesn't matter. And he says this, when I die, no one's going to remember me. Can, can you imagine that? You spend your whole life chasing after something, and then, okay, maybe the next year they remember you. Maybe two or three, maybe 20 years they remember you. But at some point, no one remembers you. Or at least the people you wanted to remember you. Why? Because it's heaven. Death causes you to put things in perspective. When I preach this son, when I, when I preach this sermon, I couldn't wait to go home to my wife and son. I didn't care about the jobs anymore. In fact, I went back to Huntsville to make the Bible college to make sure I had one more semester of sabbatical. And they said, yeah, we're going to give it to you still. Because who cares? Who cares? What, what, what does my savings matter when I'm dead, right? What does that matter? Everything is heaven. Now, I'm, I'm getting ready to go because I told you all I'd be short, all right? How should we worry then about death? Should we worry about death? That's a good question. And and I really wouldn't disagree with whatever answer you come up with. But I like the way Perpetua, if you don't know her story, she was one of the uh, great Christian martyrs uh, early on. I like the way she addressed this. They asked her, are you concerned about what's about to happen to you? Because she was about to be placed in the arena and killed before everyone by, uh, by an animal, a wild beast. Do you fear the, the, the torture? Do you fear what's about to happen to you? She said, the pain, yes. But death, no. Because Christ has already defeated death. Can you imagine that? You're about to go to die, and that's your response? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have thought of that. Am I afraid of the pain? Yeah, I'm afraid of hurting. I'm not afraid of death. Death has already been taken care of. Christ has already defeated death. When? Well, when death seemingly defeated him. We see death defeated at the cross. Here's, here's what happened at the cross. John 1, in the beginning was the word. The word, logos, logic, God's very wisdom died on the cross. Wisdom died on the cross. Perhaps that's why I, I, I concluded that Paul says that the cross is foolishness because wisdom died on it. Wisdom died on the cross. Should we fear death? No, because three days later, wisdom defeated death. 
when it rose from the grave. And so it gives us the opportunity to say, Death, where's your sting? Where's your power? You have none. You have none because wisdom has defeated you. Wisdom has defeated you. And so then, I leave with these words that death is nothing more than a spreading of wisdom. When someone dies, it's a good thing. It reminds you that that too is my faith. And that I need to start being wiser. You want to know what people life is like that don't believe in death or don't think there's death? It's stupid. No, I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm not saying for my opinion. If you ever heard somebody say YOLO or you only live once, the very next thing that happens is something stupid. The same thing that happens when somebody say, hold my beer and watch this. Something <laughs> stupid happens. Why? Because they don't have... A, a, they don't have a subliminal understanding or they, in the back of their mind, death isn't on their mind. But what happens when they see someone die? Oh, they sober up. Their life doesn't look the same for a little while at least until they forget. Death is a good thing. Death spreads wisdom. And death has been defeated by wisdom. And so because of that, you don't have to fear death. Now, the only thing you have to fear According to the Ecclesiastes, if you read his conclusion, is God. Now again, you want to know why? You want to know why people say this is a wisdom book? Because he agrees with the Proverbs writer that says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all things. Like it's great, but somewhere in somewhere in his ecclesiastical writing, he says you should fear God, but that too is heaven. That's heaven as well. But at the end of the day, he says, but that's the best option. That's the best advice I can give you, though. It's to fear the Lord. Don't fear death. Fear the Lord. And you fear the Lord. And with, by fearing the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you have defeated death. We thank you you have given us an opportunity to uh, receive wisdom, your wisdom. And we thank you for wisdom coming in the form of man to die for our sins to save us from our sins, and to rescue us from ourselves. Remind us, Lord, when death happens, that you have already faced this, and that you are there with us in our time of bereavement, and that you are there with us in our time of mourning. But that we should not allow death to go in vain, that we should use it, to bring about and spread more wisdom. In Christ's name, amen.